behind our door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Good to see you on a freezing day. This is the first day that I'm zooming in to the podcast because yes. my car wouldn't start. It's like uh, it was like about ten when we woke up, and my I did not have cooperation. So uh, first time I'm zooming in, but it feels like I'm home there just the same. Yeah. Thank God for good technology nowadays, huh? Right. Exactly, exactly. So, so today um, we have the joy of having back a previous guest, attorney Matt Cohn, uh, the founder of Matt Cohn and Associates in Chicago, with extensive experience in mental health services law, and he is full of knowledge on topics that people wonder about all the time and. The legal perspective on this is invaluable. So we're so happy to have you back, Matt. Happy to be here. Yeah, welcome back. Thanks. So Very excited. So let's jump right into it. Um, I think we recently had a guest on who spoke about therapeutic schools, and she is a former principal, which was super enlightening, I think, for a lot of our behind our door family on what it looks like from the inside out. But Let's start with like, how do you get in, I think is the bigger question, because I think there's a lot of parents out there and family members who are struggling that, you know, their their kid is going to school and I can speak from experience not doing anything. My son spent a lot of time in the hallway, in the counseling office, et cetera, et cetera. So. Sure, the law and I think common sense would dictate that kids should go into restrictive settings only under the most uh, serious circumstances and when uh, there is very strong reason to believe that there's no less restrictive setting that can meet their needs because of course we want kids to be with their peers, we want kids to have as normal life experience as possible and so uh, there's a, a very good reason to want kids to be in regular education or in less restrictive settings, if at all possible. But there are really two different routes that uh, can lead to a child being placed in a therapeutic setting. And by the way, this applies to residential also. So it's just oh, okay. I'm gonna, the, the explanation I'm about to give you in relation to therapeutic day has the same logic behind it in relation to residential. It's just one step up on the continuum. But the the most likely way, obvious way that a kid would move from a regular school into a therapeutic day school or ultimately into a residential program is that the school district is following and the family is following the different steps of restrictiveness or intensity that the law provides, which would include starting in regular ed with some support, pulling out of regular ed for a little bit of self-contained, more self-contained, and then full-time self-contained in a regular school. And then only after all of those interventions have been tried and failed is the child considered for therapeutic day school. But the logic is, well, they've tried everything else. And so nothing has worked. The only thing that may be left in terms of intensity, in terms of methodology, in terms of uh, having a, a way to provide sufficient structure for the student is to move them into a therapeutic day school. And as I indicated also, that same logic of moving up the ladder of intensity would apply to residential as well. Uh, but many kids, and including kids who have anxiety disorders, uh, 
they're not going to cooperate with the intermediate steps of intensity. They're unable to cooperate with mm -hmm. the intermediate steps of intensity. And in some instances, they're experiencing uh, very severe mental health crises that may actually be aggravated by trying to force them into the public school and keep them going in a situation or a setting that isn't really uh, effective for them, comfortable for them, productive for them, and so on. So uh, when there is strong clinical evidence that the lesser interventions that have not yet been tried are unlikely to be successful, and there is a strong basis for the clinicians to make those recommendations. In other words, not just a doctor who saw the kid for 20 minutes right. and has never met them before, but there's an actual clinical relationship and information that supports the clinical findings and so on. Uh, it's possible to, in effect, leapfrog over some of those intermediate steps, and we are successful in getting kids into therapeutic day school or residential in many situations without having exhausted the, uh, in effect, the hierarchy of interventions that are available. And, and that's uh, tough because the law explicitly says that kids are supposed to be served in the less restrictive, least restrictive environment appropriate to meet their needs. And so schools tend to focus on the idea of least restrictive environment. The law also says that schools are required to provide a continuum of services, starting with regular ed with very little support and going all the way up to residential. And so uh, in reality, schools, in my experience, pick and choose which cases <laughs> they want uh, to go very slow on. Mm -hmm. And sadly, kids with anxiety disorders and less uh, externalized types of behavior, uh, the schools frequently are not very attuned to the fact that the child's really suffering and deteriorating and, and yeah, they'll, go, they'll first go for the disruptive kid who right and they're not very concerned about that ladder of, of services being yeah. exhausted when the kid is becoming a real problem in the classroom or right. in the school under those circumstances they're very quick to move them out they, but when the, the kid is suffering silently how awful you know that's right and and particularly uh you know when kids have school refusal when kids have Obviously, school refusal, not only is it silent, they're literally not even being observed. They're not coming to school. Uh, when they have anxiety, they may come to school. They may spend much of the day uh, sitting in the bathroom, sitting in the principal's office, the social worker's office. I actually had a client I was talking to just a few days ago before uh, the beginning of the week. And she would spend half hour to an hour every morning sitting in the parking lot negotiating with her child as to whether the child would be able to pull it together to get into school and frequently she would have to escort the child into school and in just the distance between going through the school doors in the first class the student would often fall apart and even though the mother had been there to support the student getting through the school doors she wasn't able to stay he had to go to class and and just in that short time the student would fall apart and, and end up again either leaving or to some sheltered environment in the school where they weren't going to class. So uh, the way that anxiety plays out is not easily on the radar screen of the school administrators or even sometimes the school teachers. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? When you say that it's not, you know, it's tough on the radar screen, is there in the law written, you know, as far as 
the verbiage of looking at um, guidelines for who is eligible and who is not for, you know, therapeutic or residential. Is school refusal listed? Are those words, is that descriptive listed? No, it's and, not at all listed. Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, school refusal is such a, you know, it's from anxiety. It's, from, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, because a lot of reasons, but they, it's not written down like that. School refusal is. Well, but neither are most other emotional yeah. problems. Uh, anxiety isn't written down. Aggression isn't written down. Yeah. Um, depression. Uh, depression is written down as a condition that might qualify you for an IEP, but it's not written down as a, as a basis for removal to a therapeutic day school. There, there aren't really uh, the details of what schools are supposed to look at is really founded in the idea of the least restrictive environment appropriate to meet the child's needs, as close to home as possible, as normal as possible, uh, with as much integration with peers as possible. And then, and this is the part that one of the things that schools I think are especially likely to ignore, the law says that they're supposed to take into account the potentially harmful effects of the different placement options. Well, they don't think about the fact that forcing the child to stay in the more mainstreamed environment may very well be very harmful to them, right. at, at least educationally and possibly psychologically as mm -hmm. well. Uh, if the kid is uh, falling apart because they're being forced to go to school and they become depressed, uh, suicidal, and obviously that can be a physical health threat as well as an emotional threat. What should parents ask? Should they ask who and who do they ask? I mean, if I feel my child needs to be in a therapeutic school or residential treatment, where do, where do I start? Well, I would start with the case manager and requesting, uh, well, this actually presupposes that the child's already been identified as having an IEP. And sometimes the kids are having these problems and particularly because this sort of emotional issue is not uh, always noticed, the child may not even have an IEP at all. And so the first mm -hmm. thing would be to say that the child is in crisis and to ask for a meeting to uh, secure an emergency expedited uh, IEP. What happens that's just so frustrating and really terrible, the schools have by law 60 school days from the date of a request for an evaluation or an agreement to do an evaluation to complete it and decide whether the child has needs an IEP or not. So what happens sometimes with the kids with anxiety and other um, internalized emotional problems is the school says, well, we, we don't see it. And we have to be able to see it and observe it. And we have to be able to evaluate it. So even if the child has a psychologist or social worker or psychiatrist saying, oh, this kid's got all sorts of problems, the school says, well, that's all private people saying it outside of school. So we're going to need to use our 60 school days, and 60 school days is three months. It may even be more than three months when you throw in breaks. And so I'm like, uh, in the meantime, the kid's falling apart, and the school says, well, we've got 60 school days, and there's no mechanism in the law for what might be regarded as an expedited or emergency process. But if you go back to your question, they need to make sure that the child has an IEP, they need to ask for emergency evaluation if they don't have an IEP. If they do, they should ask for an emergency IEP meeting. It will be much more likely that they'll get the school to take them seriously if they have 
one or more mental health professionals already saying that the child needs uh, some form of intensive services. And by the way, the word uh, appropriate is used, not just least restrictive, but appropriate. And parents talk about what's best for their child. Sadly, uh, the schools are not obligated to do what's best. They're only obligated to do what's necessary or appropriate. So they may say, oh, Matt came to school once this week. That's progress. Oh. And you know what's happening the other four days isn't in the calculus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to talk about what Matt needs in order to be successful at school, what Matt requires in order to be successful at school. Does it help if you um, have clinical notes to back up your case it helps. that you bring to the school? The, the more information, the better. Okay. Uh, there's no quantitative formula where, you know, one inch of records is enough, whereas a half an inch isn't enough. Right. It's really the more information from the more people with the more history and personal involvement with the student, the better. Uh, there are times when a psychiatrist might do a, a diagnostic evaluation and only have known the student for an hour or two, but they have enough experience with uh, child and adolescent emotional functioning and, and the needs of kids to be able to say, this kid's in bad shape, they really need residential placement or therapeutic day, but um, that's not going to have as much power as a situation where the clinician has had a a working relationship with the child for a period of time. So if the school finally grants you, um, your child, to be able to go to therapeutic school, do they just hand you a list? Do they decide which one they go to? How does that work? Well, <clears throat> there are a couple of variables that should be part of that consideration. One is, are there characteristics of that student and their emotional condition that point towards a specific type of school and point away from other types of schools? So for example, there are a number of therapeutic schools that primarily serve kids who are aggressive and acting out. Those schools may not be so appropriate for a kid who's anxious, depressed, uh, fearful of their own shadow, you know, unable to really stand up to kids who might try to exploit them or, or give them a hard time. Um, I happen to think that <clears throat> that's not kid, kids who have those more aggressive behaviors, not so good to group them together either. That's a different problem. But certainly putting the kids. That, that's, that's, you know, like let's, let's put all of the uh, disorderly kids together in a room and think they're going to help each other get better. <laughs> yeah, good luck to the teacher. Uh, good luck to yeah. the teacher. Uh, I, I once had a case where in a Chicago public school classroom, it had 30 kids in it, and it had two kids who had severe ADHD and acting out behavior. And the strategy of the teacher was to seat the two kids together. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. It's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Uh, but in any, then that was only two kids, let alone a whole group of them. But in any case, the, the, uh, so the first variable is a therapeutically appropriate fit with what the child needs. And I think the second thing related to that is that the population of kids who are attending that school is an appropriate fit. Again, uh, likely to be kids who are similarly internalizers versus externalizers. Another thing that's uh, uh, relevant is cost. 
though the state picks up the bulk of the cost if it's an approved program. So in the end, the cost really shouldn't be a significant factor. The yeah, I was just going to ask you that about the cost. If it's covered, if this is 100%, even if it's like residential sleep, you know, it's a that's a whole different thing being there 24 hours and therapeutic. Um, you know, is this covered 100%? This gets complicated, but if the school district makes the determination that the child needs to be placed, whether day or residential for educational reasons, there should be no cost to the parent. So that's the first thing. It's supposed to be free. The law provides for a free appropriate public education, whether it's in public school or a private school day or residential. What gets more complicated is if it's a school that's approved by the State Board of Education, the state will reimburse the school district for part of the expense of a day school uh, tuition, and it will reimburse the school district for the part of the tuition cost and uh, the vast majority of the room and board cost. So in fact, the, the calculus is basically that the school district is reimbursed, though it's after the fact, not beforehand, the school district is reimbursed for everything over twice what they would spend for a typical student in a year. So let's say the school spends $15,000 for a kid normally, they'd get reimbursed for everything over $30,000. So there's actually a financial, it's supposed to neutralize the, the decision making. In fact, in an odd way, in some respects, it actually creates an incentive to, to yeah. place residentially. It sounds like it. It's like that they would think they're going to make out okay after a decision like this, even though yeah. money they shouldn't be thinking. Well, I mean, $15,000 extra is still $15,000 yeah, extra, right. but it's not, some of these schools cost 50, 100, the residential schools, two or 300,000 a year. So the state subsidy is very important. What about the cost of um, testing backing up to what you said at the beginning of this you know, there's, you can have kids tested for um, all sorts of aspects of ADHD, let's say, or um, even getting evaluated for anxiety. Do you mean uh, to qualify for the IEP? Oh, is that what you mean? No, yeah. To do the, is that out of pocket for the parents? I mean, that can be very expensive or can that go, can that be um, put through so that that's covered as well? Uh, what let's say a kid is really ADHD, for example, really having trouble, and they say, you know, the parents would say, this just doesn't seem to be working, and they'll say, well, the school would say we need more documentation. Have this kid tested. Who pays for that? Well, you you changed the question with that last comment that you made. Uh, when the school says have them tested, that's very significant. Oh. Because if the school says have them tested, in other words, by a private clinician, then the school absolutely should pay. But if the school is doing its own testing or isn't doing anything at all, and the parent just decides to get private testing because they don't trust what the school is doing or they don't trust the school's evaluation, then uh, there are circumstances where if the parents are fighting with the school about placement, we'll put in a request for reimbursement of the testing also, and we frequently get that back. But there's a, a specific legal provision that says, if the school has done testing and the parents don't like the testing that the school has done, uh, 
they can request something called an independent evaluation at school district expense. And then this gets a little tricky too, but the school district has at that point five days to either say to the parents, okay, we're willing to give you the private test at our expense, or if they feel that their testing was appropriate, they have to initiate something called a due process hearing, which is a legal procedure where they would try to prove that the testing that the public school had done was fine. And then it's up to the hearing officer to decide whether the school should reimburse the parents for the testing or not. Sometimes that's more hassle than cost than it's worth, but if you're having a fight about everything else, you might as well try to recover the cost of the private testing. And under some circumstances, we also ask for um, the private testing, even if it might have been a year or two or three in the past, oh, really? because the, the school should have been paying attention to that testing and they didn't. They should have been doing their own testing and they didn't. And so the child is, some of the problems the child is having may be due to the fact that the school wasn't reacting in a timely way. And so the parents should get reimbursed for whatever they had to do. And how often um, do children get tested? Well, or should get tested? If the issue is qualification for special education, the law requires that they be tested at least every three years, if not sooner, if there's a change of circumstance or something. You know, the child may either be making a lot of progress, right. and so you test them to decide they don't need special ed anymore. They may be doing very badly, and you test them again to see what's going on and why. On the other hand, um, because the decision about whether a child needs more intensive services or not is very much related to whether they're making progress or flatlining or regressing in terms of their functioning at school, I personally uh, often recommend that people get testing after just a year mm -hmm. uh, so that you can compare you know, earlier right. and, and more current and see whether the child is going up or down. Well, kids grow yeah. and change, and their diagnosis Absolutely. changes too. No question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that case, the growing and changing part, three years is a lot. I mean, that's uh, sure. And see how things go after a year and retest. Puberty, you know, produces changes. <laughs> yeah, Peer well, group can produce thinking. changes. Yes. Uh, positive or negative experiences. Mm -hmm. School can produce changes. Family, you know, events and crises can produce. There are so many unlimited numbers of things right. that can affect how a child is doing. And particularly when we're talking about a child's mental health, you know, if a child has a learning disability or a, a neurological problem, presumably that stays constant. But a child's emotional functioning is influenced by everything happening in their life at, yeah. at any moment. Unfortunately, yeah. Right. Are the residential facilities, um, like, are they privately owned? Are they publicly? I mean, how do, I'm, I guess what I'm asking, like, does the school hand you a list and say, okay, we've decided that as a team, we your child should probably go to residential, and here's your list to choose from? Yes, no, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> the, I knew that was going to be a loaded question. Uh, well, it's an important question. The schools, if they've made the decision, and actually you asked a, a preliminary question that I didn't fully answer earlier. If the school has made the decision a kid needs private placement, it's actually their responsibility to find an appropriate placement, not just that the parent gets to pick. Uh, schools have 
many factors that influence what they choose, including, and I talked a few minutes ago about things like, is it the right type of methodology? Is it the right peer group? Is it the right geographic distance and, and so on? But there are also schools that have had bad experiences with particular schools. They don't like to work with those schools. They have positive experiences with some other schools. I, I don't wanna get too personal, but uh, in, in, at times the Chicago public schools have established uh, in effect preferential rates and relationships with particular schools where they say, if you'll kind of do things the way we want, we'll send you a lot of kids and keep your facility full. And hmm. so those are things that, you know, Interesting. it's good to find out about. Parents may have their own feelings about what type of school the child needs, and they have a right to communicate that. I was just going to say, the parents can make a choice, too. I mean, they can make the final decision, hopefully. Uh, uh, not exactly, no. Even they, for residential? Even for residential. Oh. They have, uh, anytime a parent has a disagreement with the school, they have the right to take advantage of two different dispute resolution procedures. One's called mediation and one calls, it's called a due process hearing. So if they don't like the school that the school district has picked, they have a right to challenge the school district's decision, but it's not their choice to pick. The school picks and then the parent has to prove that the program is not the right program. Wow. So, so if a parent decides, let's say that happens and a parent is deciding to challenge the school saying we would rather have you know, choice B or what have you, is that when they go to get an attorney? Is that when they come to someone like yourself? Um, you know, I mean, if anybody can pick up the phone and call an attorney at any time, but what do you find is uh, a common time, like at the beginning, are parents trying on their own or immediately should a parent find an attorney for help? That's a, a difficult thing. I... I'm not uh, a fan of pushing people to hire lawyers quickly. Lawyers are expensive. Uh, it creates a, an escalated relationship with yeah, the school right. and can inflame the situation in some ways. On the other hand, there are lots of things that schools either tell parents that are inaccurate or don't tell parents that they should. And there are even things about private placement that parents don't know that having an attorney early on can help to avoid. And I'll tell you a very specific thing in relation to residential placement. There's actually a whole industry of professionals out there who are called educational consultants who are available to help families to pick a good facility for their child. Oh, that's a useful thing. And there are facilities all over the US, hundreds of them. And it's hard to figure out which facility is going to be the right one. However, some of those consultants will tell the parents, here are five names, and they don't tell the parents that three of those five names are not approved by the state of Illinois, and as a result, the school district's probably not going to pay for them. And so oh, wow. the parents make a placement in a non-approved school. That's uh, costly. Very costly, and, and if they'd picked one of the ones that was approved, they probably would have qualified for funding, but because they pick one that's not approved, then the school district says no and the parent's screwed. So that's the sort of thing where if you're 
even even relying on ostensibly professional advice in s- selecting a school, if you don't know how the legal process works, you may end up in big trouble. Are the consultants compensated by the facilities? Uh, I, I hate to bring that up, but I know that happens in um, drug rehabilitation places that they have all these interventionists or whatever they call themselves and... You mean, Julie, you mean the people that are placing people or helping to place? Helping to place. And like they're searching, they do the searching and placing? The way I understand it, and you can correct me, and this this is strictly for, this isn't, um, it is for residential, but more of the, the drug and addiction side of it. Um, there are people who label themselves as interventionists or consultants or whatever yeah, their title is, and they are um, contracted by certain places. So if I get a person into the facility, they will give me a certain amount of money. That's something that the parent should absolutely ask the consultant about. Okay. Because it varies varies by consultant and some consultants just charge the family a consulting fee and that's how they get paid. And some consultants get a commission and some consultants yeah. do both. So it's very important to find that out so that you know whether you're getting really objective. Uh, right. For, for many reasons, that's crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. wow. I feel for these parents. Wow. These are some really difficult situations. To navigate. Well, and actually, to, to really... answer one, one other part of the, the consideration to your question of should you or when do you decide to get a lawyer, at least I... I from the advice that I give people. I don't always tell people to hire me, but I think they're wise to come and see me. In other words, they, they can get a lot of good information, like the point that I just made about is the facility approved or not, mm-hmm. whether they decide to hire me or not. And, and so the, the important thing that can happen in getting to a lawyer who knows what they're doing quickly is to learn how to navigate the process and what the pitfalls are. You may need a lawyer right away because you've already at a stage of conflict with the school where it's going to be a legal fight whether you you wish to avoid it or not. But the more important reason to get to a lawyer quickly is not whether you hire them, but that you get some good advice about how to avoid getting yourself in a deep hole that you can't dig out of. That's great advice. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to do your research. Yeah, really, really important. Touching back, um, um, a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Touching back um, on the school refusal thing, which I think is um, a very interesting topic for uh, for a lot of parents who struggle, like especially in my profession, right? Because what's the first thing they do? They call the police. Right, sure. Little Johnny won't go to school, right. and I show up and say, "Okay, well, I am a police officer, and it's not my job to take your child to school." I can try to talk to him. I can ask him to go. I, but that's about as far as. Sure. So my advice is, please don't call the police if your child is refusing to go to school. But how do they hand that, handle it on an educational level? Well, there's a there's a slightly different problem in calling the school, which is the school says, "Oh, we'll only evaluate a kid if they're here in the building," and so then it's like there's a catch twenty two because. The kid says, I'm not going to go to school. So the school says, well, I'm not going to evaluate until the kid is in school. And so everybody's paralyzed. In point of fact, 
there's nothing legally that says a school can only evaluate a child when they're in the building. There's nothing legally that says that a school team can't go out to the house or set up a Zoom process over the computer. Yeah, I've heard of that, of school teams that go out to the house. Oh, sure. It's, that's yeah. just really laziness and, and worry about liability. But there's no, there's no legal basis for them to refuse to go where the child is. Uh, and there's also <clears throat> no legal basis that says you have to do every component of the testing at that moment. You can get information from the parent. You can do what are called behavior rating scales from the, the uh, teachers. You can interview the kid over Zoom or over the phone. Uh, from my perspective, there's even, uh, and I'm not a clinician, but if a kid is consistently refusing to talk to any of the administrators, the teachers, the evaluation team, well, guess what, folks? That's behavior too. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. A catch twenty-two. If you're saying we can't evaluate this right. kid if well, they talk or they're not I, I say, school, that's that is the problem. That's the problem. We just turn yeah. it right around and say, "Hey, you're getting lots of data. It's not on a conventional yeah. test, but it's you're still getting data. Yeah, and that data should be used to make a decision about what needs to be done." Right. Which, which actually, right before Julie asked you that, that what I was gonna going to ask is related to this. Before we sat down to have this conversation today, and we were, you were we were talking about a few talking points because you've been on before. One interesting um, point that you brought up that we to discuss is pandemic-related mental health issues and options for ongoing services. Um, first, I'd love to know what you what is categorized as pandemic-related mental health issues school-wise, but I'm assuming that school refusal is probably something that has increased maybe since the kids were not in school um that could have for for a parent that has a kid that was had trouble going to school before then they got to stay home for a year and then back in school i am sure there's a group that had trouble saying my god now i'm really having trouble getting this kid to school what are some of these is that part of it isn't it or um what's the update well, I think all of the above. I, th I think in point of fact that the uh, American educational system and probably the international educational system is in crisis because of the pandemic. Uh, I just read a study this morning that talked about the uh, pandemic resulting in a reduction in learning opportunity of between 30 and 50 percent for students in general let alone students who had school refusal or mental health problems. Uh, school refusal plays out in a variety of different ways. We had many students who had trouble going to school when prior to the pandemic, and then remote learning was instituted, and their parent was having to basically, you know, lock them into the chair in front of the computer because they didn't want to sit in front of the computer all day. That's a form of school refusal too. And uh, many kids were unable to participate in any meaningful way, even if they didn't have, I mean, let's, let's be real. A lot of what was happening during the pandemic was just boring, 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 Agreed. you know, busy work. Uh, yep. <clears throat> That's what was happening. So, and, and then you have a, an additional, and, and I'm, Sure, you have this when you're dealing with people, you know, the, the availability of mental health professionals to intervene in crises has been affected by yes. the pandemic. 
And so, you know, the families are experiencing crisis with the kids not wanting to go. And then they're turning around looking for help. And there's nobody help to help them anymore because the, the, the agencies have lost staff. They have waiting lists. They have, you know, all sorts of crises going on. And, and so the system is kind of imploding from both directions. Uh, and it, it's very serious. And the, uh, you know, some kids had been okay and now they're not. There are kids who uh, now have, you know, phobias about, oh, they're going to get sick if they go to school. Oh, yeah. They have phobias about wearing a mask. They have phobias about other kids aren't going to wear a mask. They have phobias about germ spread. You know, all sorts of things are happening that are, emotionally based, but they have a powerful impact on the ability of kids to actually just get through their day. Have you seen an influx in your phone ringing? Our phone is ringing. That's bad enough. Mm -hmm. But um, we are seeing more severe mental health problems, more severe aggression from kids who have emotional problems. And the saddest of all, and you know, this kid who was in, uh, where was the six-year-old in Virginia? Virginia. Uh, the number of kids who are coming into our office, their families are coming in at six, seven, eight years old, oh, who, are, who are doing that sort of thing. It's yeah. it's, uh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We had on uh, Dr. Julie Carberry. I don't know if you're I familiar. Okay, sure. I had a feeling you'd yeah. be. Um, <clears throat> she's a lifelong friend of ours now and mine. Um, and she was saying her her facility, uh, it's UIC Juvenile Mood. Institute Re- Juvenile Research. Yes, thank you. Thank I know you. they changed their name. so. Yeah. Um, but they had a two-year waiting list. <sighs> two years. And back when I brought my son to see them, Gosh, 20 years ago, it's so mm. scary. Um, they were really the only people in the industry who were looking into doing studies on children with, yeah. with mood disorders. Uh, I think that the, the issue of the systems being overwhelmed is everywhere. Yes. Uh, I, hospitals, here's another problem that's really sad. We have a number of facilities, residential, and this... Uh, uh, I'm going to digress for a minute. Parents should not have the false hope that a therapeutic day school or residential program is is nirvana or that they're just perfect and everything is going to be okay. That's not the case. And even in very good facilities, you've got to make sure it's the right fit and the right teacher and the right group of kids in that particular cohort or classroom or even the residential uh, dorm that the child is in or whatever. But... the uh, pandemic, any of the residential programs have severe staff shortages. And some of these residential programs have had to shut down their admission. They've had to discharge kids and and they can't cope with the level of behavior. So there are a couple of, I'm not gonna say names here, but we have several facilities that were highly regarded facilities prior to the pandemic. And now we have clients who are suing them because their kids were abused because oh my God, that's so uh, they, they couldn't staff them up appropriately. Oh, that breaks my heart. Yeah. yeah, we're really in a difficult day and age right now. Yeah, I, I feel as though this is just imploding. I mean, I, the school systems, I don't know how, I don't know how these are 
going to all be, you know, accommodated for. They're they're increasing every year, I'm sure, with all of these issues and not to mention the school violence, kids with, you know, fears over over all of that. Well, it's, it's a whole different category, but yeah. The 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 issue of school violence is and, and this six year old boy in Virginia is a good example. He's six years old. Uh, how can we hold a six year old responsible right. for this terrible act? Mm-hmm. And and what are we doing to help? You know that that kid. I, I have problems with the fact that the family had a gun that the kid was able to get to. But put, putting Same. that aside, uh, the parents were serving as the kid's aide every day, and for whatever reason, apparently that week they had stopped. But the only way the kid had been able to stay in school until then was that the parent was literally going into school and spending the day with the kid. Well, a kid who's six years old who requires that level of supervision from their parent, there's something really problematic about the child's mental health. And what was the school doing about it? Right. I, I'd also say, what was the parent doing about it? Well, I don't. I don't know. You know, the but system, the whole system. I whole mean, system is yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think parents get very overwhelmed, and obviously, it, it tells me that parents were involved, right? If they are bringing right. them to yeah, school, that's right. Um, but you get a lot of false information. I remember when we were trying to seek therapeutic school. I knew that was the right fit, and then they told me I. They gave me a list of schools. And said, these are the ones, we're not going to tell you which one we're going to choose, basically. Um, and I said, can I go tour them? Uh-huh. And they said, no. Really? Yes. They said, no. I could not even go. I'm like, that, that well, how do I know? Parent. That makes no. no sense. How do I know if this will fit my child if I can't even? So it depended upon the school. So, yes. you know, some of the schools I called and they said they did not do that for for privacy reasons or whatever the excuse they gave me at the time. And obviously, you know, I ended up at JCFS, Jewish Children Family Services Therapeutic Day School, um, and they welcomed me with open arms. And when I walked in there, I knew it was the right fit, but it, it was very overwhelming. So I, I think you get a lot of bad information is what I'm saying from schools. Maybe they said our kid needs more help and the school kept saying, well, let's just try this or do this or and you believe people because they're the ones with the degrees like right. we believe doctors because they're the ones who went to medical school right. and they have I, the degrees and they have the power right yeah yeah and, what about the oh sorry go ahead well i just think you have to start trusting your instincts and i don't care what they have behind their name you have to question them trust your instincts and question them i know, I know your kid the gut of knowing mm-hmm. Who you're dealing with Absolutely. what about the legal the legal aspect uh, well the rights of when a parent sees that a certain therapeutic day school or residential is not working and switching um that must be a uh you know obviously it's a big deal but if you see that you you know you've given it a, a certain amount of time is that something that's impossible to do. Um, I, I personally, from many calls of families, know kids that have gone to many schools over the entire elementary school uh, years. You know, let's say kindergarten, you know, not in kindergarten, first through sixth grade, they might go to two therapeutic schools or trying, or through middle school, trying to see what works. How does that, how does that play um, when oh. a parent wants to switch and the school says it's fine? Well, first of all, 
I don't want to paint a picture where public schools are all doing a bad job and are all, you know, unconcerned about the welfare of their students. Sometimes the public schools and the parents agree. Sometimes the public schools are the ones raising the concern that it's not working, and they're the ones bringing it to the attention of the parents. So I tend to have lots of concerns about public education, but there are many concerned educators who are trying to do what's right. Um, there are a lot of factors that affect the decision by a school as to where a kid's going to attend. And among other things, sadly, one of the things that the schools will react to is they just don't want the parents to feel like they've got control. So they'll push back on a parent request to change school just because, you know, we don't want you to have the message that you can just bounce around at whatever school you want and we're going to drop everything every time you decide that, you know, the color of the walls isn't right and we want a different uh, environment for a child. On the other hand, if there are legitimate things going on that the parent's able to identify, any of the schools will cooperate with that. I would say that the biggest problem in terms of getting parents' uh, voices heard in situations like this is when the private school wants to play ball with the public school and keep their seat filled at the same time. And, and it's the therapeutic school saying, there's no problem. It's harder for the parent to prove that there's a problem if the therapeutic school is saying, we think everything's fine. And the public school is going to say, well, uh, the experts there are saying everything's fine. Why should we pay attention to the parent? So it becomes an issue of how do you prove uh, that there's a problem. But on the plus side, as I talked about earlier, the financial issue, if the school district is going to essentially going to pay the same money, whether it's uh, you know, the green school or the red school, and the parent's going to be a big pain in the butt if they don't go along with the parents in making the change, more often than not, they will make the change. Uh, that's good to know. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I forgot to ask this the last time you were here, and a, a big topic that keeps coming up in a lot of different groups I'm in is about private Catholic schools, and do they have to abide by the IEP or 504 plan? And so what do parents do? Like, you know, if they love the school and they love the teachers and the teachers are trying, but it's just not working. So th there are two tiers, and I'm going to expand your question a little bit from what Go you ahead. asked, because I, I want to answer it in relation to private schools generally and religious schools specifically. Okay. Okay, and the reason that I'm doing that is that uh, there is a law called the Americans with Disabilities Act, which works in parallel with Section 504, which many families have heard of. But neither of those laws applies to a religious school. They, they do apply to a hmm. non-religious private school. Okay. And the reason that's important is that if a kid is being treated unfairly or not included or not being served in a non-religious private school, Parents do at least have some rights under yeah. the Americans with Disabilities Act. Whereas if a child is in a parochial school or another religious school, they're just out of luck. SOL. Yeah, the yeah. only thing, this uh, gets into nuances wow. of my consultation with people, but the only thing that we will sometimes do, uh, this is a little bit of an odd thing to think about in the context of your child being in school, but you sign a contract with the private school. And that contract has various provisions that say, well, 
charge you $50,000 and we're going to give you a quality education. And, but it usually doesn't say very much about how that will work or what it will look like. But in contract law, in contrast to special letter disability rights law or civil rights law, uh, you go to the school's website. And the school's website says, we're the best school and we welcome kids of every denomination, color, and, and disability, and we provide opportunities for everyone, and we make everybody feel good, and, and we have the greatest success in sending kids to college. And, and gee, the parent relied on that yeah, uh, and I made would. their decision based on that sort of stuff. And so sometimes we're able to create a, an argument based on just common contract law rather than special ed or civil rights law. Oh. But basically, the other thing that's tough, being very practical about it, is what parent is going to want their kid to stay at a school that doesn't want them? That's hard. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, it's hard. I, I never thought about that before. You know, some of the questions I was getting were more of that the Catholic schools were kind of honoring the IEP and they felt like the school was working with them. And, I, you know, who knows? Maybe it's close to their house and it's convenient sure. and there's nice teachers. And so it's a struggle to rip your kid out of an environment that you're used to. Well, absolutely right. And the, the Catholic schools private schools generally, but particularly the Catholic schools tend to have smaller classes. Mm -hmm. uh, I can say that smaller classes. Oh, sure, there are a number of reasons yeah. that, that uh, they, they're probably going to be in general safer than the public schools are. You know, so there are a number of considerations. I, I have had a number of families who send their kids to a religious school of a different religion because they just feel so dissatisfied with the public school for whatever reasons that yeah. they, they want to what they perceive to be, rightly or wrongly, the better education. The problem with that is, and I don't mean to reflect my own bias here, but, but uh, the religious schools, not just the Catholic schools, but the religious schools generally, had a very powerful lobbying effort against the application of these laws to religious schools. And so uh, oh. under the guise of religion that's supposed to be you know, supportive of, of all of their uh, flock, they're supportive of their flock as long as their flock doesn't need extra help. And uh, they made sure that the law doesn't require them to provide the extra help. So that, that's a, a troubling uh, thing. Wow. And I imagine that, that parents really do, uh, with kids that are struggling, really do go to this as a resource, these uh, private schools of whatever whatever kind, just because of the classes being smaller, thinking a kid will get more attention and yeah. and, and they're in this situation. Sure. It's really, it's tough. This, this is a whole different topic for another day, but this is a concern in relation to charter schools to some degree also that, you know, parents seek out these. Oh yeah. We'll uh, have to, um, we'll have to have you back again and talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> I know. Gosh. So if people want to find you, and reach out to you. I know you're struggling for business. <laughs> I say that with a lot of sarcasm. Well, we have a website, and that's a very complicated name. It's mattcohenandassociates.com. So uh, that's a great way to, to reach me. I'm listed. Uh, uh, people can email me at, at matt at mattcohenandassociates.com. Very complicated email address. And uh, we have a, a central intake number that people can call if they need to set up an appointment that's 866-787-9270 i 
you said that very fast, but 866-787-9270. We'll post it. Um, and uh, we have a whole team of people who get involved in these things because they're very complicated. Yeah, and I know you do You do like webinars and informational yes, seminars sir. too, I've seen through your Lots through all your that. socials. So We have probably 40 or 50 webinars at the moment on topics like this yeah. that are just on our website. I, it's such a helpful Yeah. I wish I found you back when. Well, we... I want to make one quick point if we're Go wrapping ahead. up that, that I haven't talked about yet. There are circumstances where parents get so frustrated that they can't wait for the public school to say okay to paying for it. And they're allowed always to put their kids in any private school that they want to on their own dime. That's called a unilateral placement. So you can always say you want your kid in a special ed school or you want your kid in a parochial school, whatever that is. But, and this is one of the things where not talking to a lawyer can be an issue, but if you give the public school advance written notice that you are placing your child in a program at least 10 days in advance and you're doing it because the public school isn't meeting the child's needs and you want the public school to pay for it, you give them a letter that says that in writing, you can keep fighting with them about paying for it even after the child started in the private school. Wow, that's good to know. Yeah. So that's, that's a very important technique. That's valuable advice. Yeah. Gosh, again, more things I wish I knew. Well, we cannot thank you enough for coming back in and giving us more of your Happy expertise. And your time. Obviously, you're a very busy man. No. I mean, yeah, this thank is... You. Uh, I can't I can't thank you enough for for sharing your knowledge and time with us. I thank you for sharing all of these things with families. They they're yeah, the they need is it. tremendous. Absolutely. Yeah. Well thank you, Matt. Good. Good to see you. Thank you. Good thank to you see you, Matt. Okay. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input to contact us or any of our guests. Please email us at behind our door at mail.com that's behind our door at mail.com and please don't forget to like and share our podcast um leave us a rating tell us how we're doing we really want your feedback it's important to us we are so thankful that you are here and listening to us if you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness you can call the national suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.